Thank you, Richardsons, for leading us in worship and just to the blessing that you are to our church. We're all very grateful for you. Thank you, Butch, for filling the pulpit last week while I was gone. If you have not had a chance to hear that sermon, you should go to listen to it, Christ Fellowship's website, cfgadston.org. Sermons is where you can find it. It was very good. It was a blessing to me. Let me pray before I get started, please. Will you bow with me? Father, I ask for your help this morning. We all come into this room coming from very different scenarios. Some of us came into this room with not a lot going on this morning. We only had to maybe get ourselves ready and come here, and things went pretty smoothly. Others have far too many things weighing them down, and the truth is, didn't even really want to come, but still came. Father, we are all in very different places, so Lord, I ask that you would please meet us here where we are and speak to us, prepare our hearts to hear from you. We need you to prepare our hearts to hear from you, so please, Father, I pray do that. Please speak to us through your word this morning. I know that your word, when it goes forth, it will do what you have sent it to accomplish. It never returns void. Some, this word this morning will further soften, and some, it might further harden, but none of us will go away the same as when we came in, even if we don't perceive any change. But Lord, I pray for change to more Christ-likeness, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Continuing on in our series that I'm calling The Advent, each of these sermons on a different part of the coming of Jesus Christ. This morning I've titled The Advent, God Becomes Man. And when we talk about this coming, the phrase we use for Jesus becoming man, Jesus putting on flesh, is the phrase the incarnation of Jesus. Um, It literally means Jesus coming in the flesh. That's what it means to be in Now, don't be mistaken, Jesus, he didn't begin to exist the day he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't come into being that day. His consciousness didn't begin the day he was born. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. He declared in the book of John, he said, before Abraham was born, I am, that's in John 8, 58, I am being the divine name that the Lord revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus equates himself with the Father. Jesus equates himself with the creator God of the Old Testament. He equates himself to that God who delivered Israel with 10 plagues and part of the Red Sea. He, he says, I'm the same with him. Jesus also said to Philip, I'm sorry, he said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And then later he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's in John 14.9. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that's been made, according to John one. And Paul writes, 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All these wonderful truths about Jesus are why the incarnation is such a unique, amazing, spectacular, extraordinary, miraculous, and breathtaking event. This God lowered himself. He humbled himself. He condescended to become a man. And that is just beyond what we will ever be able to fully grasp with our earthly minds right now. However, I'm looking forward to getting it better with a glorified mind in heaven because it is really just beyond words. I just can't even... I don't have the vocabulary. I don't think the vocabulary truly even exists to fully make us get it that God stepped into human flesh. (laughs) But why did Jesus take that step? That's really what I want to focus on today. Why did Jesus take that step? Why in the fullness of time was he born of Mary in Bethlehem, laid in a manger on that holy night? In other words, why Christmas? Why Christmas? Why did God become man? There's one verse that encapsulates the reason and condenses the answer to that pretty well, uh, very well. You can even call it a, a, a mini gospel if you want. It's, it's 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15, and that's our sermon text this morning. Yes, just one verse. But the Word of God is so rich and full that we could spend so much time on one verse. And this is what it says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. This is the word of God. So let's start at the beginning of that verse. Paul writing to his young apprentice, Timothy. He prefaces that important statement with something, doesn't he? He starts off by saying, not just giving the statement, but he starts off by saying what he's about to say should be listened to. He says, the saying is trustworthy. In the Greek translation, that word trustworthy, is, it's often, more often translated faithful. We find that exact same Greek word throughout other parts of the New Testament. It's more often translated faithful. What's interesting is it's actually the first word in the verse in the Greek text. Literally, the Greek text reads, trustworthy the saying. Word order in Greek languages is different for word order for us in English. Word order was pretty important. If you wanted to emphasize a word in Greek, you would move it towards the beginning of the sentence. Even at the very beginning of the sentence, put it there. It shows I'm putting emphasis on this. In English, we have a lot of ways we put emphasis on words. We, we use italics, we underline, we bold, all these things. In Greek, one way they did it was they moved the most important word to the front, or one of the most important words, saying, hey, notice this. 
Pay attention to this. He emphasizes the faithfulness and reliability of what he's about to say. Trustworthy, the saying. On top of that, what he's about to share is not only worthy of your trust, he adds something else, doesn't he? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The word deserving is often translated worthy, similar to what we already saw. But this word has the idea of weight behind it. It communicates something real, something that has sustenance, something that possesses weight. It's a trustworthy saying, worthy because of the weight it carries. Paul's basically saying, you can and should trust wholeheartedly in what I'm about to say to you, Timothy. And then what's he say? Here's the statement. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Who came? Christ Jesus came. When we're talking about Jesus, we don't, we don't, we don't actually choose that word order. We usually say Jesus Christ, don't we? Paul is more often known for saying Christ Jesus than he is Jesus Christ. And either way to say it is fine. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. But Paul, almost always when we see him writing, not all the time, but most of the time, writes Christ Jesus. Christ simply means the anointed one. That's what Christ means. There's, I, even I made a slide so you guys would have it burned in your mind. Christ means the anointed one. What's this anointing mean? You, you even see the picture there of, of oil being poured out, right? In the Bible, to anoint someone was the idea of pouring oil on top of his head. For example, David, when the prophet Samuel was showing that God chooses you as king, David, he poured oil on his head. Also, Aaron, there's a psalm that talks about the oil running down Aaron's head. Aaron was Moses' brother, the first high priest, running down his head and dripping off his beard. And it's the symbol, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence on someone. That's what it was a symbol for. It wasn't just to get the person oily. It meant something. It showed something. And so Jesus, as the anointed one, it's a, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit upon him. On that topic, Pastor Stephen Lawson had this to say. He said, Jesus Christ in his coming, was anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the saving mission for which he came into the world. He was endued with power from on high. That's what Stephen Lawson said. He, he's helping us understand this a bit better. This is power from on high that Jesus Christ received. And you remember where he received it. He was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and began his ministry. Those, that's when his ministry years began. And towards the beginning of his ministry, we find Jesus 
in a synagogue reading from a scroll, the prophet Isaiah, and he reads this. He says this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he tells the people in the synagogue, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today. To which they don't say, hooray! They say, but only the Messiah can fulfill that. Are you claiming yourself to be him? And they try to kill him. He was the anointed of God in order to fulfill the will of God, and no man could prevent that from happening. What was that will? What was this will of God? Well, we can find it in Jesus' name, the name given to him by the angel when he spoke to Mary. You shall give him the name Jesus. Do you know Jesus means the Lord saves, or Yahweh Saves, that's the divine name of God. The Lord saves. His mission is found in his name. You shall call his name Jesus. And then the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus, the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he said it that way. Save them from their sins. R.C. Sproul wrote a book titled, Saved from What? And in the first chapter, he recounts when he was a university professor, and he was going from the cafeteria, walking back across the lawn to go to the other building on the other side of campus where he had his classroom. And as he was going there, and he was going to be a little bit late if he didn't hurry, but he was going there, and he said, a student started coming toward me, and he cried out, Are you saved? And R.C. Sproul said, saved from what? And he goes on to write this in his book. He said, I think the man who stopped me that day was as surprised by my question as I had been by his. He began to stammer and stutter. Obviously, he wasn't quite sure how to respond. Saved from what? Well, you know what I mean. You know, do you know Jesus? Then he tried to give me a brief summary of the gospel. Are you saved? The words fell from his lips without being processed by, this, by his mind. As a result, his words were empty of content. Clearly, the man had a love for Christ and concern for people. Few Christians have the courage to engage perfect strangers in evangelistic discussion. But sadly, he had little understanding of what he was so zealously trying to communicate. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus became man. He humbled himself. He condescended to our level to save sinners. But to save us from what? The word saved or save means to deliver or deliverance out of some type of trouble. No one ever cries out, save me who's doing perfectly fine. You say, save me because I'm in danger. I need help. There is some peril that I'm in. It means to deliver someone out of a perilous state. Now, we all love John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We love that verse because it puts emphasis on the love of God and the love of God that is so rich and deep that he did something. He, he gave us the way to be saved. But did you know that just 20 verses later in the same chapter, John chapter 3, that we read this verse in John three thirty six: whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see, right, shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. So just 20 verses after the verse that we love to quote about his love, we get a verse all about his wrath. Same God. The wrath of God is spoken of and highlighted in the scriptures just as much as his love. Christ Jesus came into this world to save us from the wrath of God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what sin does. It suppresses truth. It ignores truth. It turns its back on truth and says, I'm choosing this instead. And God's wrath isn't his, it's not his anger pointed towards you in a manner that's undeserving. Did you hear what I said? God's wrath isn't his anger pointed towards you in a manner that's undeserving. He's not like a, a drunken father who stumbles in kicks the door open and comes at you in anger though you didn't do anything to arouse his anger. He's just angry and stammering around and looking for anything he can throw. No, that's not what God's wrath, it's nothing like that. God's wrath is a righteous judgment. It's right. It's deserved, and it's always measured out perfectly as befits the crime. It's always measured out perfectly as befits the crime. But that's our problem, see? <laughs> that's our big problem. When we were missionaries, there was always this man who always begged from us. He was always asking for money, and he was always very obviously not spending his money on things he should be spending them on. He was almost always drunk, and he was very chummy when he was asking me for money, and then when I would tell him no, there was a long, long slur of finely picked adjectives that he would call me. Just rolled off his tongue. And then next week, We'd start the process all over again. He's very chummy. And hey, you're such a great guy. No, Clifford, I'm not going to give you any money. And then come all the beautiful words. And where am I going with that? What I'm trying to say is this. He was always ready to tell me how bad I was 
But it's not just that he thought, I, he just wasn't getting what he wanted from me. And it was not right what he was saying. He just didn't get what he wanted. Therefore, he hated my guts. But here's the truth. I always told him, when I also told him, no, I'm not going to give you money, I would say, Clifford, your biggest problem isn't that you need money. Your biggest problem is that you will be judged for your sin by God. That's your biggest problem. And he never got that, at least that I saw. But we have reports from other missionaries that are still there that he may have gotten saved. So, Lord willing, I'll see him in heaven. But where am I going with that? Our biggest problem is that we are under the just wrath of God. No matter what we might think about our state, we are under his wrath because we've broken his laws. After being confronted by his sin, the prophet uh, Samuel says to David, you are the man, you're under this sin and then David declares to God in Psalm 51, 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. All of our sins ultimately are against God. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned. And that's after having adultery with a woman and having her husband murdered. But what he says, he can... And it was wrong. It was definitely sinning against them and their family. But what's behind all that is he can say against you, you only have I sinned, God. All of our sins, even our sins done to mankind, are ultimately against God because they break God's laws. And God's blameless in his judgment. That's what David said, blameless. All our sin is a transgression of God's laws and therefore a transgression against God himself. That's why Jesus came down to us because we've broken God's laws and are, need, and are in need of deliverance from that wrath that we rightly deserve for breaking those laws. And that work couldn't be done from heaven. Jesus came down to save us. He had to become man and save us, not only by his death, but by his life. What do I mean? Listen to Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born under the law, that same law that Adam and Eve broke, that same law that you and I break. He was born under that law, yet he fully obeyed it. He perfectly kept it. And that's really good news for us. Why? He was a righteous law keeper and therefore was the only righteous man who's ever walked this earth and that's why he can die in our place as a perfect substitute for us because the law for us is a roadblock. We come to it and we say, I've, already, I've broken those. I'm guilty of those. I, I can't keep those. Jesus comes to the law and can perfectly keep it. He was tested and tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. God had to become man because it's not possible for man to save himself, nor ascend himself to God. Not by our good deeds, not by any level of morality, 
not by any amount of religious activity. We can't forgive our own sins and we can't cause ourselves to be acceptable to this holy God. Listen to what George Whitfield said. He's the a great evangelist from the 1700s. He said, what? Can a man be saved by works? It would be easier to pull yourself up to heaven with a rope of sand than for you to pull yourself up by your own works. Isn't that good? And it's so true. Trying to save yourself by your own good works, by your own merit, by some sort of religious activity, by some level of it, is like trying to climb a rope made of sand up to heaven. It's foolish. God must come down to us. Salvation must come through Jesus Christ. He saves us by his life and by his death. Both were necessary. The righteousness that Christ's life produced, the righteousness of his life is necessary in order that he might be a sinless sacrifice, a substitute for sinners, die in our place. Because otherwise, if he dies, though he's not perfectly righteous, then he's taking the punishment that he deserves because he's also a lawbreaker. The death of Christ is necessary too because that wrath that we were speaking about earlier, there must be payment for sins. There must be payment for sins. There must be punishment for evil works because good judges judge rightly. Would you want God to be anything other than a good judge? Do you want him to thwart and bend justice the way earthly judges can do? Do you want him to be a God who accepts bribes and doesn't give justice? Well, you might say, well, I kind of want that for my case. (laughs) But you don't want it for anyone else's, do you? You don't want the man who steals from you to be set free and to not pay back what he stole. You don't want the man who perhaps murdered someone you love to be set free and allowed to go without any punishment. You don't want that here on planet Earth. Do you really want a God who's like that? Who lets wickedness just fly by, who just winks at sin? No. God's justice must be satisfied. And Jesus died to take the punishment that sinners deserve. That's really good news. Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. Do you see that in our verse? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He didn't come to call those who believe they're already good. Jesus came for lawbreakers. Jesus came for God rejecters. Jesus came for those who have no righteousness of their own. Those who would not ever be accepted by God by anything of their own doing. That's who Jesus came for. If you think you're good enough without any help from God. He didn't come for you. He came for those like 
the publican, like the tax collector, like these prostitutes, like the ones who Jesus went after because they knew they were wicked. Remember, Jesus' harshest words that he ever spoke were to very religious people who thought they were good enough and better than others. Jesus had his harshest words to say to people like that. Jesus came for those who have no righteousness or merit of their own. That's why it was necessary for Jesus to come into the world. He had to become like man in order to perfectly represent us before God. We need a representative. We need a, a, a go-between. We need a mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to become man in order to be under the law, perfectly keep that law. He had to become man in order to truly and rightly die, shed his blood, take the punishment that we deserve, dying as if he were a lawbreaker, though he was a law keeper. Dying as a sinner, though he was the only man on planet earth who did not deserve that wrath. He was the only one and is the only one who's ever walked this earth who did not deserve the wrath of God. Yet, he drank that cup to the very last drop and absorbed the full wrath of God upon himself. Paul ends with an amazing statement. I don't know if you picked up on this. Paul, the apostle, who's responsible for writing roughly half of the New Testament, Paul, the apostle who, besides Jesus Christ, was, was one of the most sanctified men to ever walk this earth. Not sinless, but very godly. Jesus was sinless, of course. But Paul ends by lumping himself in with the worst men on earth. Christ Jesus came into in, the world to save sinners, he says. And then he ends with, of whom I am foremost. If you've got the NIV this morning, your translation says, of whom I am the worst. The old King James says, of whom I am chief. In roughly the year 55 AD, Paul the Apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles. Then about six years later, in Ephesians 3.8, he says, I'm the very least of all the saints. Then, it's about two or five years later, we're not sure, two to five years later, he wrote what he wrote here when he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He went from, I'm the least of the apostles, I'm the very least of all the saints, to I'm the chief of sinners. The older he got, the more time he spent in the Word, the more time he spent understanding the holy presence of God, you know what it did? It helped him to see himself more clearly. He saw himself as he really, truly was. Without the Lord's help, without God, he knows who he really is. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of all the Apostle Paul said, the Apostle Paul, the longer we stare at and the more we're exposed to the holiness of God, the more we rightly see ourselves, who we really truly are in his holy light. Like some of you might have a light like this in your house. They're kind of old. I'm not sure they make them anymore, but you might have a light switch that has a circle knob on it and it fades the lights up and down. You've seen those. 
like a light that can be slowly brightened, it reveals more and more of what's really in the room, the brighter it gets. The longer we're in the faith and growing up in our salvation, the better we see God and ourselves in relation to him. And I think that's why Paul says that. Paul sees himself more like the tax collector in Jesus' parable. Remember, there was a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they were both praying. Paul sees himself more like the tax collector who beat upon his chest and wouldn't even look up to heaven, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Paul is essentially saying this. Listen to this. Paul's essentially saying this. If God can save the chief of sinners, he can save anyone. Speaking of tax collectors, Jesus was in the home of a short tax collector once. His name was Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus got saved that day. And Jesus says at the end of that section of Scripture, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. For you, this begins by confessing that you're a sinner and worthy of the wrath of God. For you, it begins by repenting of that sin and turning away from it. For you, this begins by believing that Jesus did come to save you through his life, perfectly keeping the law on your behalf, and through his death, perfectly absorbing the wrath of God that you deserve. Jesus will save you and Jesus will accept you and Jesus will wash you clean and clothe you in his righteousness and give you the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you into all truth and seal you unto redemption until that day that he takes you home to heaven. Isn't that good news? This is why God became man. Christmas, I'm going to end with this. Christmas is about Jesus becoming a man to save sinners by his life and by his death. And that's really good news for us. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you came down to us, that you became man to save sinners. Thank you so much for doing all that was necessary for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. Lord, I pray, of course, that you would please help us to focus rightly on these wonderful truths. And of course, this season, though it is a busy time and often more full of distractions than devotion, Lord, I pray that that would be flipped for us, that you would please help us to be more devoted than distracted, please. And we'll thank you for all this in Christ's perfect name. Amen.